Um, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You've heard that saying? Uh, I wonder if you've found that to be true. Uh, not, apparently not all feel that way. Uh, there is a Scottish proverb, I'm told, his absence is good company. That fell flat. That was supposed to be mildly humorous. Um, seriously, though, having people that we love who are absent from our lives can be a great source of pain and discouragement. Uh, some absences we feel constantly, and we feel them acutely. Uh, some absences are temporary, as when perhaps a loved one goes away on a business trip, uh, or a military deployment. Uh, others are more permanent absences. Uh, as I prayed earlier, I, I, I'm aware that some of you here this morning are grieving uh, the absence of someone very precious to you. One of the, the strange things I find, at least, about being a Christian is that the person who is the most important person in our lives is someone who is absent at least absent from us physically. And, and more than that, it's, it's someone who we actually have never met face to face. It's easy for our problems to feel very close, uh, very suffocating and overwhelming, very viscerally present. And yet Jesus, sometimes does he not, feels so far away. I wonder if there are particular troubles or pains that weigh heavily upon you this morning. Anything causing you to fear, to have a troubled heart. Uh, we, we may be really on the tail end of this COVID-19 pandemic. We can see things getting back to normal around us. But you understand, right, that there will be new troubles new pressures, new heartaches, new disappointments, new uncertainties that will soon follow. So in, in the midst of such troubles, how do we find comfort in an absent Savior? That's, that's a question that Jesus' first followers confronted, and it's really, I think, the main question that uh, this passage of scripture that we're looking at this morning addresses. We're continuing on in our study of John's gospel, particularly in these chapters 13 through 17. Uh, we're studying in these weeks together Jesus' last evening with his beloved disciples. And at this last supper, what we've considered over the past few weeks is that Jesus has just informed his disciples, that one of their own number, one of them in the room with them on that night, was going to betray him. And Jesus said that he was going away, and where he's going, they would not be able to come. Uh, when Peter pipes up, as Peter is known to do, when he pipes up and says he would never do such a thing, he, he's ready, he's ready to follow Jesus wherever, even if he needs to lay down his life for Jesus, Peter says, I'm ready, and Jesus says, this very night, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny even knowing me. 
Jesus is saying a number of things in this final evening that are, that are just rocking the world of his disciples. And so we can understand. You know, we know how the story ends. They didn't know how this story was going to play out in the hours and days and months that followed. We can understand, if we think about their situation, why they would be scared. Their, expect- their expectations, their hopes, it seemed as though were being shattered. What, what trouble of soul they must have been experiencing in that moment. And yet it's right there in the midst of that distress of soul that Jesus aims to comfort and help and establish them. This is one of those places where the chapter break is not particularly helpful. Right? This is, this is I mean, when you just see that big 14 there, it makes it seem like this is something brand new. This is all happening. I mean, all of this portion of John's gospel, it's all happening right after one another. So, so here Jesus saying in verse 38 of chapter 13, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Isn't that a wonderful savior? Peter, you're gonna deny even knowing me. Don't be troubled. Jesus is not aloof from you in your troubles, in your fears, in your distress of soul. He he comes near you, pursuing you with his goodness and mercy, seeking to grant you and fill you up with that peace that surpasses all understanding. That's what Jesus is aiming to do for his disciples in this passage. He does it by calling them to faith. You see there in verse one, I should just keep my Bible, but you should keep your Bible open also. I should keep my Bible open if I'm telling you to keep your Bible open. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says, believe in God. Believe also in me. The antidote to this trouble of soul is believing in God, believing in Jesus. And specifically in these verses that Aaron read to us, there are two promises that I want to draw your attention to that that Jesus makes that he calls us to believe. He promises his disciples a place in the future And he promises them a power in the present. That's what we want to consider this morning. A place in the future and a power in the present. Now, I'm going to be much longer on the first of these two promises. Okay, so I just want you to be aware of that. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Uh, Understand that I will be spending more time on this first promise. The promise of a place. Look again at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, Jesus says, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is promising his disciples a place. He says it's his father's house. And so we see here this promise is a promise of coming home. That's a sweet promise, isn't it? 
Uh, a home is a place where you belong, a place where you are safe, where you're secure, a place where you're totally accepted, a place where you can be yourself, a place of love and warmth and companionship, of needs met and comforts enjoyed. Kids, were some of you excited about going to Halawasa this past weekend and you were very upset and, and bummed that we couldn't do that? I'm sure you were a little bit frustrated by that. I have one that's sitting right in front of me who is nodding affirmatively. Yes, he's upset that we were... But you know, it was really good even though we couldn't do Halawasa. Wasn't it nice to have a home to be in? A nice warm home with all those winds blowing and the rain pouring down. How comforting How safe, how secure is it is to have a home. And Jesus is promising his disciples that they have, in the midst of their turmoil, in the midst of their trouble of soul, he says, I'm going away, I'm preparing for you a home. And there's a room in that home prepared just for you, disciples of Jesus. If you have the old King James version of the Bible, it may say mansions. We're going we're gonna to sing later in mansions of glory and endless delight. I don't think it's really, the idea is not so much a mansion. It's weird that I have a, a mansion inside of a home. That would be strange. It's, the idea is there are many rooms in this home. And I think the point that Jesus is making is this is a very spacious Home. The Father's house is very large. He never runs out of room. Uh, it, it's my understanding that the largest uh, residence in the world right now is Windsor Castle in England. I'm told there are approximately a thousand rooms in that house. Kids, maybe after the service, not right now, but you maybe want to have your parents pull up a picture of Windsor Castle on their phone so that you can see what a big, great house that is. But you know, even a house with a thousand rooms, that would would not even fit the, 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 the Christians here just in Pittman. But Jesus is saying, in my Father's house, it is spacious. He's going to prepare a house, a room for each of you, even Peter. Peter, about to deny Jesus, he's preparing, he's going to prepare a place even for Peter. Now, we may have a lot of questions. This is a promise of heaven, right? You, you understand that's, that, that's what Jesus is talking about here. When he talks about going away and preparing a place and coming back and taking them, he's talking about the promise of heaven. And we may have questions. I, I trust you do have questions about heaven, about the architecture of heaven. Is it going to be like Windsor Castle? I'm not saying it's going to be like Windsor Castle. I don't know a lot about the architecture of heaven. I don't think Jesus is using this imagery to teach us precisely about the architecture of heaven, but what we, what we need to know and what Jesus makes plain here is that it's ultimately a precious place because that place is a person. Jesus is going to come back, he says, to take his disciples to himself. That where he is, they may be also. So believer in Christ, this morning I can assure you that your best days are before you, not behind you. Because he is your future. And in him is an endless river of delights. Psalm 36 verse 7, how precious 
is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. Oh, we have a great house being prepared for us. A house with endless rivers of delight. What a home he is preparing for us. What a home Jesus is. And not only is he, is he preparing the home for us, not only is he himself that home, but he also is, he tells us, the way to that home. Right? The, the, the conversation continues in chapter 14. Look there at verse 4. Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And we're told Thomas said to him in verse 5, Lord, we, don't, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? As we've seen many times in John's gospel, Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level, and yet his disciples are caught thinking about earthly things. We've seen that again and again. We see that with Nicodemus talking about the wind and being born again, and we see that with the woman at the well where Jesus is talking about quenching a thirst. And here again, Thomas is thinking, you didn't even tell us where you're going. How do we know the way? You didn't tell us where, you said where you're going, we can't come. We don't know. And so Jesus said there in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. Because he is the one who will go to the cross where he will endure the curse of God against sinners. That's how he will make a way home. That's why he needed to go to prepare a place for them. That's the sense in which this place had not yet been prepared is that an atonement for sin had not yet been made. Sinners cannot dwell in God's house. And so Jesus would go to prepare this place by laying down his life on the cross, and thus he is the way, the only way to the Father. Now, if there, if there happen to be among us, I trust there are, even on this chilly overcast day, perhaps there's some of you here this morning, and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian. And those of you who do consider, just as a little aside here, for those of you who do consider yourselves to be Christians, when I say that kind of thing in a sermon and I address someone who's maybe not a Christian, that doesn't mean that I'm telling you all to tune out for a few minutes. I'm trying to help you also learn how to speak to your non-Christian friends in your life. So this is not a time for you to just check out and pray for the non-Christians, though you might want to do that also. If you're here this morning, and you're maybe not sure what you believe, perhaps this idea that Jesus is the way is a a troubling idea for you. It seems so narrow. It seems intolerant. But I want you to think about it this way, though. If, if you were found to have contracted a, what was known to be or what was thought to be an incurable disease, no cure and terminal, and yet you're sitting there with your doctor and the doctor says, I have the best possible news for you. We have just devised a way. There is a medication that you can take and it will cure this disease. It would be a very strange thing if you were to respond to that news by saying, there's only one medicine? There's not many medicines? Only one? I mean, is that, would you say to the doctor how narrow-minded you are that you would only suggest the one medicine? That is not how we would respond. 
We would be grateful. We would be praised. We would be so exceedingly thankful that there is a way. And we should be thankful. We should praise God. There, He has made a way. Because we all have rebelled against God. We have estranged ourselves from him by our sin. And there is nothing that we can do to get back to him. Because sin is too deeply rooted in us. And its consequences are too grave for us to be able to pay for ourselves. And so we deserve to be judged by God. And yet he has done in his rich love and kindness, he has made a way. He has loved us, rebels that we were, by sending Jesus. And Jesus has become that way by accomplishing a perfect and permanent reconciliation. He has made possible a reunion with the Father. He has come. He left the splendors of heaven to bring us home. And he did that by laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. At this point, when Jesus was speaking these words to Thomas, death had not yet been defeated. But Jesus would go and he would prepare that place for all who would repent and believe in him. And he would do so by laying down his life as that atoning sacrifice. And then he would take up his life, again, snatching it from the jaws of death in resurrection glory. Jesus could do this because he himself is one with the Father. And that's what Jesus goes on to say there in verses 7 through 11, which I'm not going to dwell on uh, really at any length at all today. But he just takes pains there to say, I am the Father of one. If you've heard my words, you're hearing the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He can come and lay down his life because he is the sent one from the Father. He is the very God himself coming in flesh and blood. And so he could make a sufficient sacrifice so that every obstacle between us and our room in the Father's house might be removed in his work on the cross and in the resurrection and in returning to heaven and sending the Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to give heed to that wonderful offer of salvation. And if you are here today trusting in Jesus, you can be confident that there is room for you in the Father's house. Isn't there wonderful comfort to be had here? In knowing that when we had earned for, you know, you know, we had earned for ourselves, there's only one real estate title that we had merited for ourselves, and that was a title to the lake of fire. We had that one in our hands. We had that one rightfully. But what mercy that Jesus has come, and he has at no cost to us, but at the cost of his own life, he has secured for us a home, an inheritance that is undefiled and imperishable and unfading, kept in heaven for us, that he has made a way for us sinners to feast forever on the endless river of his delights, that he's filled us with a heavenly hope that all of the sufferings of this present time are not worth even comparing to. You, you, you remember that vision that we have in the very last book of the Bible of, of heaven coming down to earth and the apostle John reporting, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's home. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
No more former things. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more in our Father's house. Never, never a chilly wind, never, never a, a back pain or a knee pain to debilitate. Never a pandemic. Pan, I can't even say that word. You'd think I'd be able to say that word after the last 15 months. Pandemic is the word I was searching for. Never a pandemic to upend our lives. Never a besetting temptation to dull our affections for the Savior. Never, never a misunderstanding leading to a fracture in a relationship. Never a tear-filled goodbye. Never a dashed hope or an unfulfilled longing. Never a cloud of depression hanging over us or a substance to be abused. Never a long, lonely weekend in which you were yearning for companionship. All those former things passing away. Never an injustice that goes unrighted. This is the house that our Father is preparing for us. So I return to the question I asked you earlier. What is it that you're dreading? When, when, when you put your head on the pillow at night, what, what is it? What's that worst case scenario? It's just playing around in, in your mind and in your heart. What's troubling your spirit? Jesus says to you in the midst of that trouble, take heart, dear one whom I've laid down my life for. Take heart. I've gone I've paid the penalty. I've prepared a place for you. I'm getting it ready, and you will be with me forever. I'm your future with the Father. Does that comfort you? Like, I actually really want you to think about it. Like, really, I mean. Does that comfort you? Are you eagerly eyeing the coming of Christ? Is your hope set fully there on that great day? Has that, has that occupied much of your praying this week? Oh, Jesus, come. Come back, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring heaven down to earth. All suffering, all hardship, all trouble, gone forever in his presence with his people forever. Have you lingered on that this week? Have you longed for that this week? I, I want to make sure you understand that before I get on to the, the second and briefer promise that he gives here for the present. I want to make sure you understand this. The fact that Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a home for you. I'm going to come back and bring you to it. That means it's not here now. This world isn't home. We are bound for the promised land. That's the place that is the key to our stability in times of trouble. You're not going to find it here. There may be many things, many, many people, many experiences, many possessions that you are lacking here. But I can assure you that you will not on that final day when you breathe your last and you come into your inheritance, you will have no lack because you will have God who is your true home and satisfaction. God's word says a day in your courts 
is better than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmist says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And he's made you a child. Brothers and sisters, I I, I want us to know this. In these days where we, we do feel like we're right around the corner from just getting back to normal. It feels that way, at least. And who knows? Who knows what the next week or the next month is going to bring? But it feels like we're really getting ready to have some normalcy. The way I gauge that is that apparently this week there's going to be a full capacity at the Wells Fargo Center for a, a playoff basketball game. It's like we're normal. It's like things are normal again. That's great. I mean, praise. I'm not 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 Sixers. I just mean that's wonderful that there's some normalcy returning that a virus that has wreaked so much havoc is weakening in its strength. That is wonderful. We should praise God for that. But I do not want you to lose sight of what I perceive to be maybe one of the most important lessons that God has to teach us through this whole experience of the last 15 months. And that is that this world, the things of this world, they're they're not solid. And they're not stable sources of comfort or peace or security. Don't move on too quickly from that lesson, brothers and sisters. It's okay for us to linger there and have our hearts wedded for that heavenly home that Jesus has prepared for us. Stuff here is not solid. And if you want a, a more of a biblical statement of that than me just saying stuff here isn't solid, I could say here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Everything here is crumbling. It's all subject to moth and rust and decay. And so we can say what the writer of Hebrews said of those saints in the Old Testament times, that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Are you seeking a homeland? Or have you begun to lose sight of the fact that your true home is in heaven and you're starting to get excited about having this world feel more like home again? There's so much pull, isn't there? There's so much pull in this world to attach our hopes and our treasures and our aspirations and our dreams to this world. And we already know it's not going to last. No place that can be so easily tossed into such drastic upheaval by a microscopic virus as we have experienced in the last 15 months. No place like that could possibly be regarded as home. Have you found that to be true? Do you know that it's only in God? It's only in Jesus that we have a sure and stable and eternal home for all who would hope in him. Because you know what the word of God says? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, we can't say that about this world and its things, can we? The same yesterday and today and forever. We may, you, you can wake up rich one day and be poor the next day. You could wake up healthy today and be sick or dead the next day. You could wake up happy today and be sorrowful the next day. 
but our strong, immutable mansion of rest is the Lord himself. And so he is the one who gives us great hope, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, because no matter what may be taken from us in this world, he can never be taken away. Whom have I in heaven but you, the psalmist says, and there's nothing on earth I desire besides you, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Don't move on from that lesson. All flesh is grass. I prayed this earlier. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Young people, I long for you to get this as young people. So you could determine yourself whether you're a young person or not. Oh, I want you to get this, though. All this beauty, all the beauty of youth, it's like a flower that fades. You know, I've talked about the peonies before. You've heard me talk about the peonies and how we love the peonies. I, I did that. I know I did that at one point. I was outside getting ready, putting the chairs in the, in the car this morning, and those peonies are just so pathetic looking right now. So much excitement about the peonies blossoming, and they're about, it's got 10 good days, and they're just all withered and nasty looking now. That's human, that's the things of this world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And he says, I'm going to take you. I've gone. I'm preparing a place. I've sent the spirit. I'm taking you. I'm going to be back. And you're going to see me. And your joy will never be taken away from you. That's what his word says. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's his word. That's what he wants us to encourage one another with. One day. His absence here will end, and we will be reunited, and we will never be parted from him again. This word will stand because it is the risen Christ who speaks it, and so we can count on it. He will most surely do it, and until then, until he comes and makes all things new, he has work for you to do in his name, greater works even than he did. Which brings us to this second promise. I told you it was going to be brief. A power in the present. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Did you read that? I I hope you do regularly. I hope you are reading. We we print those cards every four months because we want you to. And I would say we expect you to be reading the passage of Scripture throughout the week to get ready to come and worship the Lord together. I wonder if as you were reading this passage, did you just think, what is he talking about? How could you do greater works than Jesus? Jesus walked on water. He raised up a dead man who was in a tomb for four days. He took some big jars of of water and he turned them into wine. And he said, we're going to do greater works than these? What does he mean by that? When he says here, you're going to do the works that I'm doing and you're going to do greater works, I do not think he means you're going to do more spectacular miracles. 
That just doesn't make sense, right? What could be a greater miracle than walking on water? How would you quantify what a greater miracle? I don't think he's talking about doing more spectacular miracles. He says that you're going to do these greater works because I'm going to the Father. And I think what we're supposed to understand from that is because he's going to the Father, right, having made atonement for sin, having risen from the dead, he's going to go back to heaven and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And the sending of the Spirit is going to bring about a new age that is going to lead to an explosion of new life and enduring spiritual fruit that far surpasses anything that Jesus saw or wrought in his ministry. Maybe I can illustrate that for you um, in this way. And I'm trying to eyeball this room because I don't know how many. Do you have a number? So I know you're very good with coming up. Do you have a number of what we have in here right now? 155? Okay, so let me just break this down for you this way. Jesus was on earth. The Son of God, God incarnate, was on the earth, and he was doing those kinds of things I was just saying. He's, he's opening the eyes of a man born blind. He's walking on water. He's turning water into wine. He's, he's raising up the dead. He's healing people left and right. And when he came to the end of his ministry, and he went back up to heaven, there were less people devoting themselves to following him than are gathered in this place right now. Did you ever think about that? We're told right there in the first chapter of the book of Acts, there was 120 that were there that had committed to following Jesus. 120 people. After all the mighty miracles and the works that he did, and God himself in human flesh is among them. 120. We've got 155 in this auditorium, and it's nasty outside. How's, how's that, how could that be? That's the greater works that he's talking about. The membership of our little church is greater than the number who followed Jesus when he was here on earth. That's because God has raised up Jesus. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit, and that has unleashed in the world an age of conversions, of people coming to faith in Christ around the world that is greater than anything Jesus... Jesus never preached a sermon and had 3,000 people converted the way Peter did on the day of Pentecost. Jesus never saw disciples made to the ends of the earth the way has happened in the past 2,000 years as the Holy Spirit has come to God's people and has launched the Christian mission to the ends of the earth. And so the conversion of all peoples, it's a, part, it's a work that we're still participating in, right? We're still praying that God would raise up some among this gathering to continue taking that gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. That great multitude is what we long to see from every tribe and nation and tongue and language, which no one can number. And he's been doing it for 2,000 years. These are the, the greater works that Jesus said would be done because he sent the Holy Spirit and the mission has been continuing. Jesus' work, when he was on earth, is to draw attention to the glory of his Father, right? In John 17, 4, he says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having finished the work that you gave me to do. And we just considered last week how Jesus had said to his disciples, all people are going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. A life of love is, is that platform by which the truth of Christ is seen and experienced and understood. And so Jesus says elsewhere in his ministry, let your light shine before others that people may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. These are the works that Jesus said would be continuing to be done in his name. Even greater works 
because they would testify to the risen Christ as Savior and King, and they would lead by the proclamation of his gospel to the conversion of a great multitude that no one could number. You, dear Christian, have a part to play in that. And you've got a power to do it. He, and that power is the Holy Spirit coming in response to our prayers. You, you see what he says here in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So he's given you power. You've got, this, I wonder if this is not the comfort that you were looking for. Because maybe when you're thinking, you know, listen, I hear heaven, I've got, uh, I understand heaven, he's coming back, but what's really what crushing me here is, is a wayward child, or a marriage that is just hanging by a thread, or a job that I can't stand, or an employer that I can't stand. What, how, what, what comfort is there? I understand heaven, but like what comfort is there for me to get out of bed tomorrow? And the comfort is, I've got work for you to do to bear witness to me, and I'm going to give you all the power that you need to glorify me in all those variety of circumstances that you are in, that you are feeling weary, that you're feeling are hard, that you can't walk through. He's saying, ask me, and I will act so that I am glorified, and you will keep on doing the works that testify to me being the one and only Savior of the world. I just wonder if that is comforting to you. Because if you really, deep down, if you really just want to be comfortable here, that's not going to be particularly comforting. But if your heart's desire, if your prayer is, Father, glorify your name, if that's the way you go through your day, and that's the way you interact with your difficulties and your troubles and your circumstances, Father, glorify me. I don't understand this. I don't even really want this going on in my life, but glorify your name in it. He says, I will act. I will give you all the power that you need to glorify me. As you give yourself to this prayer, he will not fail to do all that you need him to do to magnify his name. Is that your longing? Is that your desire? That you would glorify his name? Is it your, can you say with the Apostle Paul, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Is that your prayer? Is that your longing as it is with Paul? Have you so seen Jesus loving you, laying down his life for you that you desire whatever happens, let me glorify, let me magnify Jesus to live as Christ and to die as gain. If that is your heart, as if it's not your heart, pray. pray. If that's just, if you be honest and say, I'm not there. I just want to be comfortable. Talk to somebody about that this morning. Pray with one another. Pray that we would so see Jesus that our heart's desire is to magnify him in all things. And if your heart's desire is there, he says, take heart, Christian. Take heart, child of God. He will, he will bring you to your home on that final day. And every day until then, he will give you all the supply of grace that you need by his spirit to magnify him so that the power of the risen Christ is seen in your life, in your neighbors, in your loved ones, to the ends of the earth. Don't be troubled, dear Christians. Believe in God. 
believe also in Jesus and his glory will be seen to the ends of the earth. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you're, you're, you're so good, your salvation is so amazing, the, the hope that you've stored up for us is so spectacular. Even the promise of present power that you've given to us, that we might be your representatives, that we might bear fruit that would testify to your love and your grace and power, it's, it far surpasses what I've been able to say this morning. Father, help us to believe May we find our heart's true comfort in the calling to glorify your name. Would you strengthen our hearts? Would you, would you wean us from the pleasures of this world and make us truly eager for that heavenly home that is prepared for us? Would you help us to go forth from this place eager to hallow your name? And trusting that when we come in your name, not just tacking on the words in Jesus' name at the end, but when we come with an eager longing that your name and that your reputation might be known in us and through us, you will act for your glory. Make your glory our highest good, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.